Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, thank you guys and good morning. Make sure I'm on here. And, uh, you know, when you uh, do public speaking a lot like I do, you notice that you tend to have certain pet phrases that you use over and over again. One of my favorite to use here on Sunday mornings typically is, it's great to see you here this morning. And so I'm kind of grieving that this morning because as I look at this mostly empty room that we normally meet in on Sunday morning um, for a second week, it's hitting me that I don't have the opportunity to do that. And I do have the opportunity, though, it's great to see those who are here this morning. We have a collection of a few of us. Great to see the band. But at least I get to, I guess, greet you all by name. So it's good to see you here, Janelle. It's good to see you, Lou. It's good to see you, Matt. It's good to see you, Nick. It's good to see you, Wes. It's good to see Aaron. It's good to see Daniel as well. But as we begin this morning, I think this is just one of those things, another one of those things that we're facing right now. Um, that's just awkward and strange. And, I, I, and you hear people all the time describing what we're going through, using all kinds of different words to describe it. And I, mean, I think many times it's interesting to think about the words that we use because words have power. They give description and they give meaning to things that sometimes seem meaningless or indescribable. They help us to define what otherwise might be indescribable or undefinable. And, and I wonder what some of those words are that you've heard throughout this time. Strange. Weird, eerie, maybe scary or crazy? What word would you use to define what we're going through? I found this description online this week, and I I thought it was a fitting description that somebody wrote about what we're experiencing, not just kind of what we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus outbreak, but really what we've been experiencing for the past three months. It was really about the year 2020 so far, and I thought it was a fitting description. It was also kind of a little little, little humorous, and so I wanted to read it for you this morning as we get started. And it goes this, if, and somebody wrote this, imagine if 10 years ago you were approached by a time traveler and he was like, look, I don't have much time to explain. All I can tell you is that the year 2020 is going to be an absolute circus. You know Donald Trump, the star of The Apprentice? Well, he's the president of the United States. Australia catches on fire. Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter crash. Half of the world is devastated and the other half just makes memes. Just when the world starts to recover from the loss of Kobe, though, some dude in China eats a bat and starts a global pandemic. Everyone loses their minds. 40% of the population thinks it's the end of the world. Another 40% thinks it's fake. And another 20% blames it all on cell phone towers and Tom Hanks' kids. But the one thing everyone seems to agree on is that the only way to survive this is by hoarding toilet paper. All sports are canceled, and eventually, as hysteria grows, world governments are forced to shut down the entire planet and lock everyone in their houses. Strange days right now that we're facing. And sometimes we struggle to find the words to describe it. However, one word that I hear used over and over again that almost everybody is using, whether it's the media or government officials, and maybe you've heard this word used around your circles, is the word unprecedented. Everyone's saying that right now. And look, I get it. Uh, Technically, we have never faced anything like this. COVID-19 is a unique virus and something that is unprecedented. But at the same time, every time I hear that word, I cringe just a little bit. And here's the reason why. That word is so ominous. It implies that We've never seen anything like this. That there's this threat unlike anything we've ever seen on the face of the planet and throughout human history. 
And that word lends itself to feelings of panic and hopelessness and doomsday scenarios. Because if this is unprecedented, if this has never happened before, the idea is that there is surely no guarantee, so maybe there's no hope at all that we're going to see the end of it. And even the word itself is intimidating. I mean, think about it, unprecedented. It's a five-syllable word that most commonly is used as a hyperbolic statement or a hyperbolic word to kind of get some kind of a strong reaction. I watch a lot of sports, and I think about this when sports commentators and advertisers typically use this. They talk about some Tuesday night college basketball game in the Midwest where, no, where neither one of the teams are ranked, and they say, it's an unprecedented matchup. And what they're trying to get you to do is to pay attention and to watch it because this is history in the making. When in reality, it's a college basketball game that nobody really cares about. But this word has gotten, but to the the extent that this word has gotten our attention about the virus and its impact, it's a good thing, don't get me wrong. To the extent that it's caused us to take the necessary measures that we've needed to take, it's fine. But I still cringe when I hear a word like that being thrown around everywhere. And I don't mean to make such a big deal out of just one word, but that word has so much power in the way that it's impacting everything in the way that we see our situation. You know, as we continue in the book of Hosea today, one thing that we have seen in this biblical book is that the words of God here that were written and spoken almost 3,000 years ago are still every bit as relevant to, to us today as they were during the time of Hosea. And not just in a general way, in the sense that they speak to our modern day situation, but it's been remarkable. I think over the past few weeks we've seen this, we're going to see it again today, how Hosea's words, again, spoken and written 3,000 years ago, speak to the specific situation that we're facing now, even today, and facing the COVID-19 pandemic. And look, I think this is miraculous, in my opinion. As I look at this, I consider the fact, and it reminds me of the fact that God's word is living and active. And as much as some people will say the Bible is just a historical ancient book that really has nothing to say, it's so antiquated, does it have really anything to say to our our modern day living and the way that we live today? This is a reminder that God's word is not only relevant today, 3,000 years later, but it'll be relevant, just as relevant in 3,000 years from now. And just that thinking reminds us that when we come to God's word, we are hearing from a good God who is eternal and sovereign. And when we say that nothing takes God by surprise, what we are saying, really, is that there is nothing unprecedented to God. Corey Ten Boom says this, There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. So before we start assigning all kinds of words to what we're facing right now and what we're dealing with right now, let's hear about what God's words have to say about that wonderful plan that he has for us. And we're finishing the book of Hosea today. It'll be our last week in this wonderful series. And uh, I know as I say that, I can hear all of you almost groaning in disappointment because uh, this book has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. I, I almost feel like when you leave a book like this, it's like saying goodbye to a close friend. And we've been in Hosea now for 12 weeks, and so we've been going through this book. We've gotten to know Hosea. We've gotten to know about his life, his marriage, his ministry, the words that God has him speak to Israel. And so it's almost like saying goodbye uh, to a good friend for a while as we close out in Hosea chapter 14 this morning. This will be the last chapter in the book and the last week that we look at it for a while. But I think this is really the, a perfect ending. As we get to this chapter, you're going to see this, I hope, that this is a perfect ending to the book to sum up everything that we've been talking about over the last two weeks in particular and really over the entire book over the past 12 weeks that we've been going through this. 
And uh, going back just a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at Hosea chapter 12 and a message that was called Truthful Love. We talked about how important God telling us the truth is and that when God tells us the truth, he's telling us the truth because he loves us. We also define truth as not just not telling a lie, but telling the truth about any given situation so that when we understand the truth, we can see clearly from the right perspective, the perspective that God would have us to see, even if the truth isn't always what we would like it to be. So that because God loves us, he tells us the truth, he tells us the way that things really are. And last week we looked at Hosea chapter 13 where we talked about hopeful love. As we looked at how God brings hope out of even the most hopeless situations because out of his love, Jesus went and conquered death, faced death, overcame death to defeat death so that although we, we face difficulty and struggle in this world, we ultimately have nothing to fear because we have been given new life by faith in Jesus. And so it's those two things along with the larger images and themes that we've seen throughout the book of Hosea that relate to God's love that we're going to bring to conclusion this morning. And I think you'll be happy to hear that as we get into the conclusion, you're not going to have to hide the kids today. Uh, This is a happy ending and it's going to be one that I think is encouraging and is certainly timely for what we're facing today. So as we do, we're going to see all of this kind of come together from the beginning of the book. And the one, one most important thing we're going to see come from Hosea chapter 14 is the most remarkable action of love that we see in the entire book. I think it's the one that's the most directly relevant, the one that's the most comforting, the one that's the most encouraging. We see the promise of God's love. And I really believe that in this case, God saves the best for last as we get to Hosea 14. So let's start reading with all that in mind. Hosea chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 1. encourage you to grab your Bibles or whatever device you're reading Scripture on and look at Hosea 14 in verse 1. It says this, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We shall not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, and his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain, and they shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, for from me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Now, you may have noticed this as we read through this chapter, but this chapter takes on a little bit of an interesting form. And it's really a form that can only be captured with poetic literature like Hosea is and like this chapter is. Um, because it's a, it, it actually takes the form of a dramatic dialogue that God is almost having with himself. Which, I know that sounds a little bit strange, but there is a point to it and it's really powerful when we see why God does it this way. 
So starting in the first three verses, these are presented as Hosea's words functioning as God's call to his people. And we've seen this pattern throughout the book repeatedly in the book of Hosea, where God calls out to his people, return to me, and then he says, this is what has separated you from me. And he calls out the sin, the unfaithfulness, the breaking of the covenant, whatever it be. We see different aspects of that throughout the book. And then we see, this is what you should do in response. But what you see here is a little bit different. There's a little bit of twist, a little bit of a curveball, because in, in verses 2 and 3, this takes the form, really, of Hosea personally speaking to Israel, saying, Israel, okay, God has called us to return. Now this is what we need to do together. This is how we return to the Lord. And he throws himself kind of in the basket with the rest of Israel and says, this is what we need to do. And he models their response. And he says things like, we need to respond with petition and praise to the Lord. We need to promise, according to verse 3, that we will no longer trust in the things that we've trusted in the past. The Assyrian kings, the horses, which represent the military of Egypt. The things we have made with our hands, which are the idols that they have crafted, that they've worshipped instead of God. We don't trust in those things anymore. We need to turn back to the Lord. And this is what this looks like. And then at the end of verse 3, it ends kind of abruptly, and then there's a quick turn in verse 4 where we see God's response. We don't see Israel's response. We don't see anything that comes from that other than Hosea speaking these words, and then God's response happens in verse 4, which brings us to the big turning point of this chapter. And I, I believe it's not only the big turning point in this chapter, but really of this entire book. You could also say it's one of the major turning points in the entire biblical story. It's that big. It's the ultimate game changer, and it's one of those many places where we see these kinds of words in the Bible. But then starting in verse 4, it says, I will. This turning point is introduced to us with this phrase, God saying, I will, and then it's repeated two more times in those, in those next two verses where God says, I will, I will, I will. And why is this such a big turning point? Because this is a promise. God is making a vow and a promise. And there's no indication that Israel has responded to anything that Hosea has said, not only in the first part of this chapter, but throughout the other 13 chapters of words that he has gone to Israel to say, repent, change, return to the Lord. We get nothing here at the end of chapter 14 about Israel's response. In fact, we end this book without any kind of epilogue about what happens after these words are spoken. Now look, we know from history that Israel didn't respond. In fact, they ignored Hosea's words and warnings, and so God continued to send other prophets whom they ignored their words and warnings as well until eventually the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians as God said what happened, which led to the exile. But none of that is the main point here, though. What the spotlight shines on in chapter 14 as this whole thing comes to an end is this promise of God's loving action towards them. That this loving action brings them to a place of promise. Despite the fact that Israel has seemed not to respond at all to what God has spoken to them for 14 chapters to this point. Now look, this is a significant change because it's not an if you do this Israel, then I, God, will promise to do this. This is God saying of his own free will, even though I know you're not going to respond, you haven't responded to my constant pleas for you to return to me, I still promise to do this. It is God recognizing that his people are in such a helpless place due to their own faithful, unfaithfulness and the wandering of their hearts. And they've been so captured by deceit in such a way that they're ultimately broken down. And in that space, God comes to them 
and says to them, I promise I will. And look, if there's a connecting phrase, we said earlier that verse 3 kind of comes to an abrupt end, but there is a connecting phrase between verses 3 and 4 as this chapter makes a transition. And it's in that phrase at the end of verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. This is important because this is an obvious state of where Israel is from God's perspective. And the imagery of the orphan is significant because it represents a couple of important things about the situation that Israel has found themselves in. First, it's a statement about the statement of their, of their, the state of their relationship with God. And that where they had started as God's son under the covenant, now because they've broken that covenant relationship, they have lost their birthright, so to speak, and become orphans. So secondly, then as a result, it's a statement of their spiritual state. And as a result of their broken relationship with God, Israel is helpless. You know, in the ancient world, an orphan was particularly helpless and vulnerable. Because there were no social, social services set up like we have today in our country. And so in the ancient world, if you were orphaned, you were relying on somebody else in your family, extended family, maybe to take you in. And if nobody did, then you would live your life basically homeless, trying to fend for yourself. Now, that's not only the truth in the ancient world, it's also the situation in many places in our world today. I remember when I realized that several years ago, I was out in Uganda, and if you're not familiar with the situation in Uganda, Uganda, especially in modern history, has one of the highest uh, orphans per capita rate in the world. And when I was there for the first time, I was struck by the fact that there were so many kids in the main, in the main city, the capital city of Kampala. And we were driving through this, and we had a guide with us who was a local pastor. And so I assumed these were just kids kind of just like hanging outside of their house and playing together in the middle of the street. But I thought it was kind of dangerous that they were out there. And so I asked the pastor about it. I said, where do all these kids come from? Where do they live? And he said, well, actually, these are street kids, which is really just another way for homeless kids. These are all orphans whose parents have died from the AIDS epidemic or from other things that have gone on in our country. And they've had nobody to take them in, and there's no services to be provided for them here in the city, and so they're just kind of hanging out in the street. And a lot of them, as young as six to eight years old, were trying to make a living by buying and selling things in the local market or by offering some kind of manual labor that they could just to eat, just to, just to earn something to buy some food. But a lot of them, I noticed, were walking around with paper bags on their face, covering their nose and their mouth. And I thought for a minute that maybe they were doing that because there's a lot of dust in the streets, and as they're walking through the streets, they want to protect themselves from the dust. And so I asked the pastor, well, I've noticed there's a lot of people running around with paper bags over their face. A lot of these kids, some six, eight years old. And he said to me, yeah, those kids actually are huffing paint to relieve their hunger pains. So they fill that with spray paint, and then they put it over their face, and they just huff the paint to deal and to numb the pain and the suffering that they're feeling, most notably the hunger pangs that they feel. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't think I've ever seen a more desperate situation in my life. And then he said to me, the ones who have become addicted to it, you'll see because as they take the bag off their face, there is a ring of paint that has stained their skin around their nose and their mouth. And as soon as he said that, I started noticing little kids walking around all over the place with faint stains of paint in their skin. I remember thinking to myself how desperate and hopeless of a situation that could be. It couldn't get much worse. And that's exactly the kind of situation that God is describing here when he says, you are an orphan for whom I have mercy. It highlights God's mercy. There is desperation here that is coming out of these pages, and God's mercy meets them right where Israel is most desperate. You, Israel, are like an orphan on whom I have mercy. 
I think spiritually speaking, when we feel like orphans, we'll often try, like those street kids in Uganda, to do anything that numbs the pain of our situation. And if we stop for long enough and stop pointing fingers at other people, stop pointing fingers at our situation, even stop pointing fingers at God, we realize that there is a deep spiritual hunger pang that is there that is longing to be filled. And I think for many of us, we realize that, and it's such a defeating feeling that we can't live very long with it, so we turn to all kinds of things to make it go away, to numb it, if even for a moment. You might have seen this um, viral video going around, because of course right now, this is one of those times when these kinds of pains, these spiritual hunger pains become, uh, become visible, become literally pains for us as we go through this. And so we're doing all kinds of things to try to comfort one another. And you might have seen this video that came out a couple weeks ago. It was a video of celebrities who were quarantining themselves, but were singing parts of John Lennon's song, Imagine. And if you haven't seen it, there's all kinds of celebrities in it from like Will Ferrell to um, Jimmy Fallon and Natalie Portman and and these kinds of people. But anyway, they, they, they get together and they sing this song, I guess, as a way of making people feel better during the quarantining that we're going through right now. And I thought this was such, a, such an obvious example of us trying to numb the pain through distracting ourselves to what we were really feeling, to make us feel better even for just a moment. I'm actually a big Beatles fan, and I think most of the celebrities in the video, I like most of them. I don't know them personally, but I like their work. But I, I think it's an interesting song choice. And since the song and its lyrics play such a vital role in the video, here are some of the lyrics if you're not familiar with the song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. And as I read these words, I think to myself, and this is supposed to comfort us in some way. And I guess this is supposed to create a feeling of unity and some sentiment. At least that's kind of what these people involved in the video were trying to do. And it's performed by what for many people are our modern day kings and queens, celebrities. And maybe it's entertaining and maybe it distracts us and it's kind of in some way vaguely sentimental. But how long does something like that actually last? Until the next headline? Until the next video? And look, Hopefully one of the things that we're starting to learn and what we're facing on a daily basis is that we need more than mere mere sentiment right now. We need more than just distraction. What we really need is real hope. The only thing that will truly satisfy when we're really hungry is real food. That's the only thing that makes the spiritual hunger pangs go away. Any other way, although it might numb the pain for a moment, doesn't actually remedy the source of the pain. This is why Jesus presents himself as living bread, among other things. He presents himself as the only food that will satisfy. The only one who can take orphans into the household of God. Disenfranchise people to being true children of God in the household of God and being fellow heirs with him. And even in Hosea, even though in Hosea Israel has made themselves an orphan by their own unfaithfulness, God sees their desperation and makes a promise to save him, to save them. And look, the Bible would say that although this is where we find ourselves, we have God's saving grace through Jesus to make our way back to the Father. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, For all of us who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So in order to bring Israel back as a child, God has to redeem them as orphans and make them legitimate children and heirs. And so it's with this background, in that place of desperation, that God says to Israel, I will, I will, I will. He promises, he makes vows, he initiates vows that he knows that Israel can't return and promises out of his grace, knowing that they have rejected his grace in the past, that they are ignoring his grace in the present, he makes a promise for his grace in the future. He says, if you won't return to me, essentially, I will bring you back to me. And look, we can't miss the picture of the marriage vow that is in here as well. I think vows are, are, are meant to reflect the unconditional love of God, especially in the marriage relationship. And when we see something like this in Scripture and we have the background of Hosea and his marriage to Gomer, I think this speaks to us about what a marriage vow, how a marriage vow informs us about God's vows to us and how God's vows inform us about the love that we show to our spouse in making promises. And look, the vows and promises that you make on the day that you get married are not just to love the person for that day. Because everybody loves the person they're standing in front of on their wedding day. Right? A woman's got her beautiful gown on. She's never looked more beautiful. She had her hair done professionally, spent hundreds of dollars on her makeup. I mean, she looks radiant. The man, dressed in a tuxedo, beaming, excited for his bride. There is, everybody loves on their wedding day. Everybody's ready to promise love as you stand there. But what happens the next day and the day after the honeymoon, even if that person is different 20 or 40 years down the road, and if you've been married that long, you know that that person you married always changes over that period of time, and you also change. Now, we hope that in marriage that we grow uh, for the better and we grow together, but that doesn't always happen the way that we want it to. And as a result, I don't know how many people I've heard say, look, he is different than the man that, I've married, that I married, or we've grown apart. And they use that for grounds for divorce as if that's the point of marriage or that's the power of what a vow contains. But that's not the wedding vow commitment because just as God promises here to Israel, I will love you not just today, but my promise to love you is a promise for the future, no matter what that future might bring, that we promise to love unconditionally and not just now, but forever. And this is the force of what God is doing here with Israel. That these are real promises based upon the unconditional love of God so that when things change, and especially when things change, we see how powerful and amazing this love truly is. When it comes to God, this is the kind of love that holds on to us when we can't or we won't hold on to him. Now, my kids are young enough for me to still remember what it's like when they were just learning how to walk. And if you've ever done this with a toddler who's just learning how to walk, like a two-year-old, like one-and-a-half-year-old, or whatever it may be, and they're still stumbling, like they're not able to kind of walk on their own yet, or if they are, they're not able to kind of keep up with you. If you're walking and you've got their hand, you know that when you're holding their hand, it's more about you holding on to them than it is about them holding on to you. 
Because they're stumbling and they're falling and they're losing hold and they're trying to lose hold of your hands so that they can run away. And as a parent, your hold on them is the only thing that can prevent them from falling in a lot of cases. So they stumble and instead of face planting, they just kind of fall like matrix style, like they're bending back and doing this whole thing because you've got a hold of them and you're holding on to them. And they may even lose contact with the ground, but they don't fall because you've got them. And look, we aren't saved or given mercy from God because we've found a way to walk without stumbling. We aren't walking with God because we hold on for dear life. We are often like the toddler. We get a couple of steps before we stumble, and we're ready to do a face plant. And the only reason we don't is because Jesus is holding on to us. We're often like the toddler who lets go because we want to do it on our own, or who is hesitant to step because we're paralyzed by fear, and yet the entire time Jesus holds on to us, not letting us go, catching us when we stumble, holding on to us when we try to let go, and gently pulling us forward when we're afraid to move. Look, you don't have to be cowering in a corner and weeping in a blanket to feel stressed and fearful and anxious during this time. Chances are most of us are feeling those things at one time or another on a daily basis. But we have a God who took on human flesh and sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, who cried out on the cross in agony. He knows the distress. He knows what distress can do to a human being. But he is also the sovereign creator and the Lord of the universe. And he is the one who is saying, trust me, I've got you and I've got this situation. This is why Jesus tells us, do not be anxious and do not let your hearts be troubled. Because in this world, although there will be trouble, take heart because I have overcome the world. This is an invitation to trust in a personal God who is sovereign and good. He sees you and he feels your stress, your anxiety, and your fear. So God doesn't promise us mere detached impersonal sentiment. He gives us the promise and the vow of unconditional love, which is the substance of our hope. Because everything that we hope in goes back to God's promise of love. And the sovereign God says these words to you. Listen again from Hosea chapter 14. He says this, I will heal you. I will love you freely. That word freely means without bounds or limits. My love for you is boundless and limitless. And as we look back in Hosea 14, again in verse 5, what we see is the results of God's love and the blessing and flourishing. This is concrete love that we can get our hands around. Because listen to the difference that God's love makes to his people. It says in verse 5, the dew from verse 5, which represents kind of the morning clouds in a desert environment in the Middle East. We know this well, summers. Think about the summer, like the middle of August or the middle of July here in the Arizona desert. How there's Little to no rainfall aside from the monsoons. There's little to no rainfall. That's the, that's the environment that Hosea is describing here, that Hosea is picturing here through his words. And he says the morning dew is the one thing that the plants use, that the plants have to rely on to survive. Because there's no irrigation, there's no rainfall. The morning dew is the only, the only moisture that a plant has during the day. And so he says just that amount of water provides all of this. Just that amount of dew from God, pronounce all of this. And he says, look, look at all the flourishing that happens there. The fruitfulness of lily blossoms, the stability of the strength of a root system of the tallest and strongest trees, the beauty of the olive tree, the fragrance that comes from all of that flourishing. And then he talks about the shadow that God provides in his security and provision and the grain and vine, which are symbolic of food and sustenance. And then again, God provides everything for the hunger that we have. 
As one commentator puts it, this whole section in chapter 14 describes blessedness in terms of paradise, an Eden-like existence. And really the point of this is to show how much blessing and flourishing comes from one small piece of dew. Think about this for a moment. In the previous chapter in Hosea 13, you may remember that God uses the image of dew to communicate how things are here one day and gone the next. And then on chapter 14, he talks about how this small amount of moisture, the small amount that God gives can produce all of this flourishing in life. It's amazingly disproportionate that such a small thing could produce such amazing life and fruit and blessing and flourishing. And that's exactly the point. The disproportion and the fact that it shows how big God is is exactly what we need right now. You know what we're facing today has its tentacles and effects in all kinds of different ways in our lives. And again, whether it's anxiety or fear or stress, it's hitting us from all different ways. It's a lot like grief in the sense that it comes in waves and it comes in places and in in, in forms that we don't expect it. it. It's unpredictable. It seems relentless at times. So what that often causes us to do is react disproportionately on the other end, making issues and struggles seem much bigger in our minds and our hearts than they should be. And so it's times like this we need to be reminded that even the smallest amount of dew that God provides has the potential to provide flourishing and blessing. And that it's disproportionate because our God is great and big. And it's times like this when we need to be Reminded that the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And especially in the past three weeks, we have seen what this looks like. When we looked at how God loves us because he tells us the truth. That he tells us how things really are. He cuts through the fog of all kinds of other things that cloud our perspective. Shows us what things are really like from his perspective. And in the fog of constant bad news that we're struggling with all over the place. You can't get away from it right now it seems. He reminds us of the good news. He gives us real hope. He gives us true hope, not only in a way of explaining things now and the way that we should see things now, but where everything is going and how he has secured real hope for us. And then finally, as we saw today, he gives us a promise. He promises that by his loving provision, hope is secured in a personal way for each of us who trust him. Not just today, but forever. So we can persevere through the worst that life has to offer because we have hope. And not just hope that wishes or hope that has dreams, but hope that has true substance. And we can have perseverance and we can persevere because we have our eyes focused on what is coming. You know, another word, I talked about a word that I like to use uh, earlier. Another word I like to use is the word encourage. I'm very fond of using that word because I think it's a beautiful word when you understand what the definition is. The definition itself is to give someone confidence That comes from hope. And hope is directly related to courage and confidence to face whatever we see. The beautiful thing that we've seen today in Hosea 14 is that this hope doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how you feel about it or what you think about it in the moment. It's not you holding on to hope. It's hope in the person of Jesus Christ holding on to you. You can stumble, you can trip, you can feel like completely giving up, but he keeps holding on to you. That does not change. And he's not letting go no matter how much you stumble, no matter how much you swing your legs in the air or try to run from him. And this is as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, 
we are very bold or courageous. And look, as, this, as we bring this series to a close, I want you to think about all of the ways over the past 12 weeks that you have seen how God loves you. And I hope that it's comforting and encouraging to you, especially now in the moments that we face. I want to suggest one way also that you can respond to each of at least the last three weeks in terms of how we've seen God's love expressed. So that if you're feeling anxious or stressed or even fearful, you can respond with some concrete actions of faith. And we actually see these responses from Hosea's directions to Israel in chapter 14 that we read here, the first three verses there. So as we finish the book, I think it's fitting to get some more instruction from Hosea as we close out. But this model is really how we should respond anytime we hear God's word. Typical pattern is this. God initiates, he speaks to us, he speaks promises to us through his word, and then we respond in faith just by trusting what he has told us is already true. But I want to finish with these three things. They're all actions that start with the letter P so that they'll be easy to remember. But here's the first one. Because God tells us the truth, we can respond with a new perspective. Because God tells us the truth about our situation, we don't have to allow ourselves to be taken by deceit and manipulation. We can be free to be comforted by the truth that God lovingly tells us. And the, way, the place we find that is through God's promises in his word. We have to be in the word that gives us a new perspective because God tells us the truth through his word. Secondly, because God gives us real hope, we can respond with a new posture. Look, because God uh, gives us real hope, we don't have to live as people defined by fear. So our posture should not be focused on all the things that we might lose as if just receiving things from this life is the point of it all. But in actuality, turning away and constantly returning to the Lord to receive the true hope that Jesus gives us. And then finally, because God gives us a promise of love, we can respond with petition and praise. There's a two-for-one action P word for you, if you will. Petition is another word for prayer, but it's also just making everything known that's on your heart to the one who is holding on to you. It's a way of just giving all of those things that even might be fear, anxiety, stress, doubt, whatever you're dealing with in the moment, giving it to God. And then along with petition comes praise. Praise and thankfulness which flows from knowing God. And if perspective, posture, petition are all done, praise is the natural result. I want to welcome the band back up on stage with me as we pray to close out. And as we do, I want to pray that uh, we would see the promise of God, how true it is. And the vow that God has made holds on to, promises to hold on to us no matter what we face. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we know that um, we're dealing with all kinds of things that are on our minds and our hearts. And I think even as we gather together in a, in a, in a strange environment for us, it's a constant reminder of what we are dealing with and what we're facing. It's almost like we can't get away from it no matter where we go. I think sometimes we wake up in the morning thinking that maybe this was all just a dream and that it's gone away. And for just a moment, there is a feeling of hope. So Father, I thank you that the substance of what we see and how we process it 
is not the perspective from which you see it. I thank you that although we may look at our situation and say this is unprecedented, it is overwhelming, that it does not overwhelm you. The Lord, nothing is taking you by surprise. It is not unprecedented. You have a plan and a purpose in it. And even though we can't see it, we trust you. And Lord, we hunger and thirst for that small amount of dew that we know that can produce blessing and flourishing in every situation, every circumstance that we face. We are hopeful today because you are a God who promises and keeps his promises. And we are secure in your love for us because your faithfulness has been demonstrated over and over and over again in our lives. And I pray, Lord, as we continue to engage your living and active word that's a reminder of your goodness and faithfulness and a reminder of how you have promised in the midst of it all to love us, that truly that would change our posture. Lord, it would change our hearts. It would change our perspective. But we cry out, we need you. We need the God of mercy. We need the God who is faithful. We need the God who loves us in so many ways that we have seen through the book of Hosea. Lord, your love is truly multifaceted and it meets every need that we have. May we trust in that and may we believe you when you say, I will heal you and I will love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Perfect couple of songs to end on. Thank you for joining us today online. Look forward to that day when we get to see each other again face to face. Until then, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you throughout this week, comforting you and reminding you to return to the one who has promised to love you and give you hope. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.